Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Molly Rowan Leach of Molly Rowan Presents and I'm your co-host with ABA best-selling author and founder of Cutting Edge Law, J. Kim Wright, for the Evolutionary Lawyers Telecounsel series. This archive is featuring um, the amazing guests that we are also co-facilitating a workshop with next month in February 2012, James O.D. And as we mentioned in the introductory of him in, in the call, he directed the Washington, D.C. Office of Amnesty International and is a, a powerful peace builder, internationally renowned author, and conflict resolution expert, among many other things. So please enjoy this archive from our conversation with James O.D. And for, for more information about the Evolutionary Lawyers workshop that he's co-facilitating with J. Kim Wright, please visit his website at jamesod.com. You can also look at cuttingedgelaw.com for the archives and also information about this upcoming intensive for lawyers. Thank you and enjoy. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. This is Kim Wright, and you've come to our very special call for the Evolutionary Leaders Series that we do on Mondays. Um, and uh, with me is my co-host, uh, Molly Rowan Leach, and today we are so pleased to have James O'Dee. Molly, will you get us started with the technology, and then also, um, if you would please, given your special relationship with with James um, introducing for us. I'd be happy to. Thank you, Kim. It's great to be here with you all today. And just a quick note, um, for those of you who haven't been in the room before, if you have a question throughout the call, you press 1 on your telephone keypad, and that alerts us that you have a reflection or a comment. Uh, the archives for this series are posted at mollyrowanpresents.com or excuse me, at cuttingedgelaw.com, as well as the schedule at both my website, which is mollyrowanpresents.com, and at cuttingedgelaw. So without further ado, it's my honor and pleasure to welcome James O.D. I've had um, just the great experience of working with him uh, for a good portion of the last eight years. And James um, has lived a life of great service to human rights and peace building. He spent a decade as the Director of Amnesty International's Washington, D.C. office, where he represented the U.S. to the U.N., and he kept former President Clinton and Bush Sr. on their toes surrounding human rights issues. He has an international student body from over 25 countries that participate in his peace ambassador trainings and his peace building intensives in Crestone, Colorado, and otherwise. And he's also author of the critically acclaimed Creative Stress, a book that turns stress on its head and provides tools and context for reframing this omnipotent force in all of our lives. And currently he's finishing a new book called Cultivating Peace, which has a foreword by Arun Gandhi, Mahatma's grandson, of course. And um, he also has, has consulted with attorneys in the past year and is co-facilitating the upcoming Lawyers Intensive with Kim next month, Lawyers as Agents, 
of evolutionary change. So uh, it's just a, a great pleasure to have you with us today, James. Great pleasure to welcome. be here. Thank you so much, Kim and Molly. Well, welcome, James. We're really pleased to have you, and we're sorry that you're doing this with a cold. And I, uh, I told you uh, just as we were getting on, I sent you some virtual hot, hot tea. <laughs> right. <laughs> much appreciated. Um, <laughs> so, James, um, the way we usually start is we ask um, everyone, um, all of our guests, to tell us a little bit about their path and how they got where they are. And given that yours is so illustrious, um, I, um, I I could imagine we could be here all day. So if you could do us the uh, Reader's Digest version, that would be great. Uh, I've always had a passion for justice, and even as a teenager in London, I received the Teenager of the Year Award for battling the lack of good treatment for senior citizens. And uh, that passion uh, took me to many parts of the world where there's conflict and, and turmoil. I lived in Turkey during the Civil War, I lived in Beirut during the invasion and the massacre of the Palestinians of the Sabra Shatila camps. And those were really deeply formative experiences that then pushed me towards Amnesty International, 10 years lobbying, testifying before Congress, meeting government leaders around the world on human rights issues, attending the World Conference on Human Rights. So really looking from a legal point of view, I think that that's a fascinating area of looking at how one promotes human rights through the law. There are many aspects of that promotion, but one is building the status of international law. And uh, your listeners may be interested in a showdown I had with the administration uh, around the Convention Against Torture when Jesse Helms was chair of foreign relations and referred to the Convention Against Torture as a skunk in a bag. And uh, But I, I tested them in a way that really worked because I said we would expose the U.S. government on a number of fronts with regard to increasing the pain threshold in the definition of torture, which you, I mean, can you believe it? Uh, but, you know, there was something in that realm that also was not enough for me and I wanted to see beyond legal remedy and human rights education and promotion and mass mobilization, how does one go deeper into the causal weave of human rights violations? So that was looking at wounding and healing processes rather than who's right and who's wrong. And uh, that led me eventually to, you know, as president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, looking at the very nature of our consciousness and its capacities to see where, in fact, the pivotal aspects of our evolutionary development can change the story. So that's, a, that's a, it in a nutshell. <laughs> I'm just laughing with uh, quite, quite a nutshell there, James. Um, so one of the questions we usually ask people is about whether they felt that they were called by something in particular, and I kind of heard that in your talking that it was about justice. But can you speak more about that and and whether you experienced it as a calling or 
um, some would say a compulsion. Right. No, it was definitely a calling from early on. And uh, what I think was <coughs> interesting in the weave was the movement from just justice, you know, that passionate desire to see justice done, to beginning to weave in healing and justice. What is the relationship between healing and justice? And so that became a, a deeper integrating call in my own life, looking at healing, looking at places like South Africa and Rwanda, places like that where tremendous uh, you know, human rights violations led to so much suffering. And yet they're, they're both countries struggling with a path forward that actually stops the cycle of vengeance and, and tilts, at least in some ways, towards healing the social order so that one doesn't repeat the patterns of the past. So I, I think it's been a journey of exploration and deepening, as even I mentioned with regard to consciousness itself. What is the relationship between consciousness and spirituality, between consciousness and real evolutionary progress? that can change the story. And so I think in the root of that, there is some sort of idealism that keeps calling me back to the fact that the story can improve way beyond our limited imagining. Well, and how do you nurture that idealism? Um, seems to me that you've been you've been in a, in places where a lot of people would have become cynical and and you've actually uh, experienced it in a different way or re responded in a different way. Yes, I think that um, cynicism, as I'm as I write about quite a bit in the book Cultivating Peace, which will be out in April or so, is really. Uh, the, the great limiting factor on our progress, because cynicism is a kind of collapse of the will. It's a collapse into a state of regret, of, of false pragmatism, of saying this is only what can be achieved, and those who go beyond this line are living in a daydream or not grounded. And uh, I think, it, Kim, it is my contact with average, so-called average people and their, their incredible contribution to human civilization that is so often not told, like the man in the middle of the rubble in the Palestinian camp with, every, you know, with so much death around him and so much destruction and so much chaos, so much bombed away, because, you know, a camp where the Palestinians begins in 1948, and so these camps are bricks and mortar, they're not tents, and they were bombed in that 1982 invasion. And he called us, I was with a medical team, he called us over to have coffee with him. And it was such an image of the indomitable spirit of the human being speaking to me in a way that revived my sense of human possibilities, that if this man 
Shepherd maintain his humanity and his dignity and wanted to be revealed, wanted to be seen. Not his anger, not his hatred, not his desire for vengeance, but above all, his being itself. And I, that, you know, my lens has been looking at the world through people like that in Northern Ireland, in Rwanda, in Israel, Palestine. And I believe that we all have called to leadership and many levels of leadership, but the leadership of the average person who, who goes into deep reconciliation when members of their family have been murdered or tortured is the thing that really says to me, okay, James, if they can do it, you can do a little bit better. Oh, well, and that, that's really, really wonderful, uh, James. I, it leads me in so many different directions. I'm glad we're going to have a chance to spend some time together to explore those. <coughs> Um, I, w I want to talk about uh, your vision of the upcoming intensive, but first I would like for you to talk about your book, Creative Stress. Well, yes, and the two are, are related. I mean, I wrote Creative Stress, a path for evolving souls living through personal and planetary upheaval, again as a practical book, not as a wild philosophical ride, which I could have been tempted to do, having, you know, moved in circles like noetic sciences and elites discussing the nature of consciousness, but really, again, out of homage to how one, how it is possible to transform these fierce energies that come at us. So we all know that, of course, negative stress is a killer, and there's no, the... the Medical and scientific research is in on that subject. But what we don't look enough at enough is that whole transformation of that energy, that riding of that energy, that working with that energy, that truthful relationship of, towards energy, any energy that comes in. That's what I'm interested in because I think that's the evolutionary edge. It's people who are in all kinds of professions that are challenging, that are fully you know, stressful every day and, and even traumatic, and yet how some people manage to take that energy and make it the creative edge of our own, their own personal growth and our collective growth. And so that's what creative stress is about. It's really about energy mastery, and we'll do some work around energy mastery in our intensive together, which I'm so looking forward to, Kim, because that energy mastery is really possible. It is a psychological, a spiritual stance in relationship to the energy that comes in. And it's working with processes that say, you know, I don't have to turn everything into negative energy. I don't have to have it pull me down. I can master even the most trying energy, and and out of it, you know, create a healthy pattern for my own life and so forth. But I think in terms of the vision for the intensive, you know, we live at a time of such extraordinary change. You know, I, I love the document, the Earth Charter, which we'll bring with us. 
which opens up, you know, we stand at a critical moment in Earth's history, a time when humanity must choose its future. And the whole templates of meaning for us all, for religions, cultures, for the whole of humanity, those templates of meaning are really shifting. And what does it mean for lawyers and evolutionary leaders and thinkers um, with regard to how those maps of meaning are changing? Those maps of meaning we call worldview. But where, where are the really cutting edge examples of worldview transformation that are leading us out of dysfunctional patterns. And we see in so many areas of health, education, democratic participation, systems theory, that, that the world as we knew it is really shifting. And we need a new level of integrated person. We need a new psycho-spiritual capacity to integrate what is emerging. So the vision is really to look at worldview, what is changing from what to what, where are we going, what is really emergent in terms of health and wisdom and educational process. What then are the capacities that we need to hone in on in terms of moving with those worldview transformations. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Very much so. And James, I'd, I would like to just ask if you might, um, since we're, of course, gathered with a large group of attorneys here, um, might you speak a few words about, um, given the relevance of, of your book, Creative Stress, and working with that that edge of energy, um, and and what you know what might be the solution for attorneys like the ones gathered here in their daily practice around um, staying with that that energy as as a as a transformative force, um, even in the midst of such. Uh, of such stressful situations, which are inevitable within the field of the law practice. Um, what's the evolutionary edge? Well, I think part of it is um, in this systems approach to knowledge that we've been looking at, so that we say, okay, we know, we may know what is evolving in law but are we putting it together with what is evolving in health? Are we putting it together with what is evolving in ecology and economy? And that begins to give you a different landscape of meaning. So, you know, with regard to health, the science is so clear that the body itself is this extraordinary mirror of whatever is happening around it. It's it's acutely honed in to the reality of the world around us. And yet, it's often the case that we don't listen to the body, that we push the body around, that we abuse the body in ways, that we don't listen to its signaling. One of the things that I talk about in Creative Stress is precisely aligning ourselves with that intelligence of the body 
so that it guides us in a way towards deeper truth and deeper understanding rather than denial because we have somewhere to go denying the body's reality rather than you know creating these false positives that say you know it's all fine and don't worry about it when in fact the body is beginning to store up a lot of toxic energy that hasn't been processed and so i think it's integrating molly it's integrating both that science systems thinking and holism with a new map of reality that says you know what there is something so fundamental in attuning to our bodies and their intelligence and what they have to teach us that we can work with them and when we do what they say well you know what the body says repeatedly is I'm attuned to the truth of the situation, whether or not you are. I'm going to give you signals that tell you about my exhaustion or my unease or my emotional suffocation or whatever. Are you attuning yourself to to me? And so that work of reattuning ourselves to the primary reality actually takes us into an evolutionary stance because we self-care we we improve our empathy you know I think of just the science of listening which I have a whole chapter on in cultivating peace uh, and I think of lawyers how the profession directs you know their listening in a particular way they you could say it's it's postural listening looking in a very detailed way or the stance of the other lawyer or the positionality of the other. And one really has to make sure that one is also practicing a lot of other forms of listening because they are vital to one's health. And, uh, you know, empathic, heart-centered listening is a different kind of listening. And it takes you to a different place. It takes you not to the positional truth of the other but to the subjective truth that you're experiencing and that they're experiencing and if anything will be remembered of in sort of philosophical terms about the 20th century it will be the valuing of subjective truth that's an enormous contribution to forging truth as as it was in the case with South Africa of truth, reconciliation, and forgiveness work was not just the truth of the facts, not just the truth of who did what, but the truth of how people experienced the reality, what it meant to them, how they felt. And that's an enormous advance when we say we can listen for that kind of truth because it will open up universes of meaning that get blocked off when we say, I'm only interested in the precise informational truth about the facts. One take on your question. Wow. Thank you so much. And and, uh, what that reminds me of, if I might just uh, comment, is one of the golden nuggets 
that I've I've gleaned from um, our work together, and that's uh, he said to me once, and I hope that I get this right. Um, about when approaching uh, perhaps a conflictual situation, that it's it's very important to to be in oneself without uh, what you're referring to essentially that that expectation, um, that directive thinking um, that then then excludes us from seeing quite literally. Um, the the opportunities and other avenues that can be taken, directing us in perhaps even surprising solutions. Um, I carry that with me wherever I go, and I know even though I'm not an attorney, that this is very practical wisdom that that can benefit um, us even by just placing our very attention on the power of our listening and of our of our inner work and presence in approaching every situation that probably comes through on a daily basis, uh, a range of high stress situations as well as you know, moderate and otherwise. So thank you for covering that. Um, and uh, Kim, I, I'd also like to just note, for those of you, it looks like we've had some people join us since the beginning of our call. James, James is a, has a bit of a cold, so we're going to have him for just a few more minutes here and would encourage people, if you have a question or a comment, to press 1 on your keypad, um, on your telephone keypad, that is. And so Kim, did you want to go ahead and direct James in a, in a bit further direction around February or take it with, with you? Well, I, th I think he, he's covered that, and we've got a, um, we've got hands up, and we've only got just um, a few more minutes. So why don't we why don't we start with um, with a question from Nancy? And uh, I, I will um, mention that if anyone uh, I'm sorry, Nancy, if if anyone wants to learn more about the intensive, uh, if you will email us, we can set up a call, and I'll I'll have a, a call with you to determine whether it's a fit for you. Uh, I don't think it's a fit for everyone, but if this is what you're up to, um, this would be a really great way to accelerate what you're doing. So, um, and you can also you can also find out more about the intensive, of course, at, at cuttingedgelaw.com as well as at James's website, which is jamesod.com. Nancy, you're live now. And welcome. Right, yes. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to stay with this uh, question about uh, getting to the truth working as lawyers looking for the truth of the fact. And we use that as a filter to get to what, what you know, maybe a bottom line. This is a very difficult proposition to change in the practice because we all come in with our own truths, obviously, our own perspectives, and then also a whole bunch of layers of emotions so that the stories that clients come in with, the system can't work with. I, I hope I'm expressing myself well enough here. Right. I uh, what, a, what a client wants, a client uh, out of a system of the rule of law, a client cannot get, no, um, quite often if you understand. Um, they can get some sort of uh, a sense of uh, they can get a sense of judgment, but not maybe not necessarily a sense of fairness. 
Right. If you look on and on the macro scale at this topic, you have the truth commissions really began in Argentina with the report that was uh, called Nunca Mas, Never Again. It became a bestseller in Argentina for many years. The simple reporting, uh, or the not-so-simple reporting, of the truth of, of what was done under the military junta. So there you had people desiring to know the facts, absolutely, but also the chains of command and the next level of motivation, why, and so on. So there were layers of truth that began to emerge that that actually helped the country from going back into other paroxysms of violence. If you look in South Africa, it was, yes, one thing to have, say, we will give amnesty to those who were in the system who were responsible for violations if they tell the truth. But what began to occur was a sense that that truth needed to be accompanied also by the truth, the sincere expression of the truth, not just, you know, yes, I tortured so-and-so on so, such a night, now I get my amnesty. But the victims themselves were, 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 in their questioning, were pursuing, what is the really authentic truth of your your experience of of the suffering of the other person, and and some people think that in fact that part of the commission's work was was stunted. If you look in Rwanda at the Gachacha process. Again, you have, you want the facts. The facts have to be obtained. That, that, that no one disputes that we want to throw out the facts and just have the emotion. But the processing of 80,000 people in village courts called Gatacha, which means on the grass, again, communities wanted to know why their neighbors know, butchered friends and neighbors, why, why they participated in the way. They wanted to know the inner side of that. And that knowing, when, when that knowing was revealed to them and, and, you know, communities got to participate fully in the justice system, you had a whole different kind of truth process that, that matched up with this word healing. So you can have you can ascertain the facts and have no healing, which is what we have in the United States, largely in the justice system, where you know twenty eight percent of the people imprisoned on planet Earth are imprisoned in the United States because there's no there's no reality behind the facts. There's only well there is a reality, but there's no deeper attempt to find healing and until Justice and healing meet together, and they're always in a kind of tension. I absolutely agree with that. There's no, there's no simple answer to that. Jean-Paul Lederach, who wrote about uh, social healing, you know, talks about the tension between mercy and and healing and justice and truth, 
They're in a kind of dynamic relationship. But what we want to do is bring things to the table that have been excluded. May I ask one more question? Do we have? We um, is it quick? I, we've got others waiting, and I'm just going to ask James's indulgence for one more question from somebody who's been waiting for a while. All right, thank you. All right, Daniel. Open Daniel's Hello? mic. Yes. Hello. Hi. Are you talking to me? Yes. Hi, I want to ask James. Uh, the, the Congress is made up of lawyers. Are people approaching the Congress to give them the benefit of this line of thinking of getting to the healing behind and the, the cooperation behind the so-called facts that uh, are in so much conflict? Um, I, I think the human rights movement is certainly evolving into an interest in the truth and reconciliation processes because they see that these are what are going to prevent cycles of violations. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's advanced enough in terms of you know, pushing for legislation around restorative justice or something like that. And as we see, in Congress, what we, you know, the adversarial mind, the world view of us versus them is really mirrored deeply in Congress. I often think of Congress as sort of emblematic of the most immature thinking around us and that the average person in so many places around the world, are, they are evolving beyond their politicians. They're asking their politicians to get out of the sandpit of the adversarial mind into a little bit more complex and subtle and inclusive worldview. So I think we have our work to do. What I think is called for are people like you uh, to, to step up into political role. We need a new generation of of leaders who are able to master the subtleties and the complexities of deep dialogue. Without dialogue, our species is doomed. And and yet, you know, we, we don't really see Congress as capable in any fundamental sense of being dialogic. It's, it's, it's deeply postural in its reality. Yeah, we do have our work cut out for us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. I'll take one more question and then. Uh, well, Nancy, um, do you want to ask yours? Because um, I think we, we lost everybody else's hands, and, but I know Nancy. Oh, that great! I would love to, um, because I was uh, hanging on this idea that that was mentioned earlier about the actually exploring the why of. Um, of, of, of a, the why or the motivation, why goes deeper than motivation for a, for an act such as a, a genocidal act? Is it ever sufficient? Can any can, can a person who's committed something so horrendous as that really explain the why? Maybe that's a reason we don't really want to go there because there is no sufficient why. Um, I don't know if there's a sufficient why, but there is uh, 
that I met in, in Rwanda that people were pulled into their basest uh, energy systems by their government. The government said, you know, kill the cockroaches and demeaning language systems that reduced other people, that, that created the social biology of excessive adrenaline and cortisol literally pumping and communicated from person to person. The politics of fear engender this. So we do know some of the hows, how people are stirred up, how they are motivated to do atrocities. But we also know increasingly that people are capable of a vast reservoir of reconciliation processes and forgiveness and healing processes. And so if, on the one hand, you have those forces that, that are inviting us to separate, divide, and build the politics of fear, our work, it seems to me, is to really produce those templates of reconciliation, forgiveness, and healing, which are complex. You know, people ask me a lot about forgiveness. I was given a award by a forgiveness alliance a few years ago and I say it's not uniform and it, it, sh it should not be made into some compulsory sense of thou shalt forgive and all will be well forgive and make it real you know really go through that process with the other that changes the relationship and uh, you know I recommend a movie and I've recommended to people before, called Red Dust, about the truth, reconciliation, and forgiveness process in South Africa. It's a, not a documentary. It's a, it's a drama movie, but it gives you those layers of complexity in once you go for the truth, and you need to, it's like layers and layers of unfolding process. And I think the truth is always in dynamic relationship between people. Father Michael Lapsley, who had half of his face blown away and his hands blown off by an A, uh, for his he was a pastor with the ANC, told me once that though he's created this institute for the healing of memories as part of that healing process in South Africa, he has not forgiven those who blew off his hands and blinded him in one eye, because even though he knows who they are, because he feels that to make it real, they must come to him and seek forgiveness, and he must, in that moment, ascertain the sincerity and the truthfulness of their, you know, declarations of of. of of sorrow or whatever it is that's going to make it real in the moment. So I, I think that's, again, a partial answer to a very deep con con question. But I would say that I've been with Holocaust survivors and Nazis who have deeply reconciled. Maybe we'll never understand fully the genie that was out of the box with Nazism and the ferocity of that hatred here. But what we do know is 
that human beings can transcend those polarities and show us an evolutionary path forward in ways that I think are astounding, at least to me, that we have those capacities. And who are who are the people who are calling and educating and and, and teaching those capacities? The, that's the evolutionary curriculum that I want to be a part of. Thank you. We lawyers have such a, a potential for being that in our communities, don't we? Indeed. So, James, it's um, past the 30 minutes that uh, your body said you wanted <laughs> to be here. Well, thank you <laughs> so, so much, and I, I really hope you. those who are listening will join us in Manitou Springs and really get into the complexities of these topics, but both look at worldview transformation, what is really happening, what is really happening in systems thinking, and then what are the capacities that we need to align with the evolutionary worldview transformation that's afoot. And thank you so much for your brilliant work, Kim, and your own dedication to peace and healing. And thank you, Molly, also for sponsoring this series. Uh. Thank you, James. And um, a last note uh, before you hop off, I just want to let people know that you also have a, a pertinent essay at the closing of Beyond Forgiveness, which is a book edited by Phil Cousineau. And the title of that essay is Creative Atonement in a Time, in a time of Peril. And it ties deeply into what you've just shared with us. So. Um, thank you so much for your life of service, and i uh, really looking forward to to working with you in February. Thank you, thank you. And take care. <laughs> yes, yes. Bye -bye now. yes, be well. Be well. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. And, and Kim, as James is leaving, do we want to say any further words or ask, ask anyone for reflections, or, or is it time for us to close today? Well, does anybody have uh, anything that they want to... Uh, to share with those of us who are still here now that James has, has gone. And again, press 1 on your keypad if that's the case, if you'd like to make a reflection or a comment, or it's very possible that we'll just go ahead and close out. It looks like Bob Berlin actually has a, a comment. Go ahead, Bob. Uh, well, you all hit a home run, a grand slam home run, and thank you so much for bringing him to us. Mm. Thank you, Bob. Where Where are you calling from today, Bob? Uh, Macon, Georgia. Uh-huh. Thanks for being with uh, us today. Good to hear your voice. I've been missing you. Missing you as well. So, thanks, thanks for being with us. And so, um, just once again, everyone, if you would like to check out the archives of, of this series, um, that, that's at cuttingedgelaw.com. And um, if you're interested in the body of James's deep work um, as it applies to his books, you can check out uh, Creative Stress, both in the audiobook uh, format that he narrates, um, as well as a link for purchasing his, his book on Amazon at jamesod.com. And all the information you ever wanted to know 
about this exciting upcoming collaborative intensive between Kim and you and James um, is at jamesod.com as well as Cutting Edge Law. So just thank you so much everyone for your lives of service in, this, in the, the field of law. And thank you Kim for co-hosting this series with me. Thanks everybody. Um, and next week we'll be here with Sylvia Klug. Um, uh -huh. and, um, very much looking forward to that. Great. Well, thank you everyone. And thank you, Kim. Have a great week. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye.